Good morning, church. Remind you of this author of the hymn we just sang, William Cooper. He was a friend of John Newton's. John Newton was the slave trader who came to know Christ. And uh, William Cooper was his friend. And William Cooper battled very serious depression his whole life, tried to take his life on a number of occasions. When you read these words in view of that, uh, they become very powerful, even more powerful, that God moves in mysterious ways and fearful saints, and His ways are sometimes unfathomable, blind unbelief, and so forth. If you ever struggle with doubt and depression and anxiety, there is a simple, simple hymn for your comfort. Well, we are studying through the minor prophets, these little prophets at the end of the Old Testament, and we are in our second sermon on Obadiah. If you're visiting with us and uh, you happen to know it's Mother's Day, well, nothing says Mother's Day like Obadiah, right? Uh, No, you have to understand we just studied through chapter by chapter, but uh, this does say Mother's Day, and every day we are in need of the pursuing, relentless, fierce love of God the Heavenly Father. And we are in need of it. We're in desperate need of it, need it for ourselves, and we need it for the pattern by which we are to live in faithfulness to others. Remember this little book, uh, you can look at your table of contents, there's no shame in that to find it, 722 in your pew Bibles. Now, this little book written hundreds of years before Christ, we're not exactly sure exactly when it's written, but it's certainly a long time before Christ, preparing for Christ and addressing this group of people called Edomites. But the Israelites are listening in. God has a message for them too. And uh, these Edomites are descendants of a man named Esau. Jacob and Esau were twin brothers in the Old Testament. Jacob is the father of the Israelites, and Esau is the father of the Edomites. And though we can't pinpoint this historical situation exactly, it could be one of two places, one of two times, uh, either uh, in the ninth century or in the sixth century, these Edomites, these cousins of the Israelites, who should have felt some kind of family loyalty anyway, stood by passively and allowed the enemies of God's people to destroy their city. They stood by passively. They were unbrotherly or unneighborly. They saw their neighbor in need and failed to love him. That's a universal message that we need to hear. It's a universal message that everyone needs to hear, a message that Jesus never failed and never does fail in keeping, and yet it is one that we are in need of to know that Jesus cares about that kind of failure we have experienced, and He's one who calls us not to imitate the same. We begin reading in verse 10 of Obadiah. Obadiah verse 10. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, that is, ignoring him when he was in need, shame shall cover you, 
and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Open our eyes, dear Lord, to see your fierce love for us, your fierce parental love for us, and may we imitate it on every occasion and with great courage and care. In Jesus' name we pray. God's people said together, amen. Michael Orr is one of our own from Memphis, went to the great Briarcrest School, and there eventually was adopted by Leanne and Sean Tuohy, brought into their family, made family, a brother to their children, considered their own child. He considered them mom and dad. He went on for a very distinguished football career as an offensive tackle uh, with the Ravens and the, and the Carolina Panthers and the Titans, retired a few years ago. A number of years ago, a movie was made about his life called The Blind Side, so named because uh, the offensive tackle position sort of evolved over the last couple of decades. Uh, coaches recognized that they were uh, losing their uh, uh, quarterbacks by the droves as they were getting tackled from the blind side. Uh, a right-handed quarterback goes back like this to look down the field, and he can't see who's coming behind him. He needs some big tackle there to protect his blind side. And though Michael Orr had never really learned football, he was he became a football player at Briarcrest, and I don't know if this incident happened or not, but it was certainly in the movie as Sandra Bullock portrayed Lee Ann Tui. She was there watching this first football practice, and Michael Orr was not quite getting the idea of uh, the tackle on the blind side. And so uh, a, a naturally gentle soul, he just let people, he got out of people's way and let them by, didn't want to have any excessive physical contact with anybody. And the coach would yell and scream at him. It wasn't connecting. It wasn't really connecting what his position was. Until his mother, played by Sandra Bullock, marches out on the field and, and uh, to the uh, consternation of the coaches, says, let me explain this to him. Michael, Michael, this, this quarterback, this is your family. This is your family. You protect him. That connected. He went on to have a very distinguished career protecting his family. 
It resonated with him because he had experienced that kind of protection, his rescue from the streets of Memphis, from the dangerous uh, neglect he had been experiencing. It resonated with him because he experienced family, and he gave back to that family. He wanted to be a fellow protector of that family. God says that should resonate with every human being made in the image of God. Jesus answered a, a peculiar question by the religious leaders of his day. They, they said, uh, who is my neighbor? And they perceived that the answer was, my neighbor is someone who shares my religion, someone who shares my political views, someone who may live right next to me, who is certainly my family. My neighbor is someone I like and I want to serve. And Jesus told the parable of the good Samaritan. A Samaritan is someone who was despised by the Jews as a kind of half-breed, as someone who also had, uh, they, they thought, lifted their hand in uh, opposition to them and in persecution of them. And in the story, the Samaritan is the hero as he comes to the aid of a Jewish man who has been robbed and left for dead. And Jesus left the message as this, everyone you come upon who is in need is your neighbor. If we dial back the picture, if we dial back the theology of Scripture, this is what we find at the very beginning. Every human being is made in the image of God. And therefore, because everyone has inherent dignity by being made in the image of God, everyone is owed our love, our service, our best, regardless of the way they treat us, regardless of the way they they behave the way they look, what their limits are, what they can do for us, what they can't do for us. And then if we dial the Bible in a little more tightly and think about it as it unfolds, its story unfolds, God says, not only is my image to be protected, but I want it all protected. That would be enough if I told you this is my image protected. I want the human race to be protected because I desire to save an innumerable host from the human race. Noah gets off the the ark, and so he's given a number of laws. And one of those laws is, uh, if anyone sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. I, I want to preserve the human race from you killing each other because I desire to save. And then we can dial the Bible in a little more closely as it develops, and we understand not only is this every human being bear his image, and he wants the human race to be preserved so that he can save many. He particularly wanted the Jewish race preserved because through that line, the Messiah would come. So from the beginning of time, the devil is warring against the image of God, hates human beings, but he particularly hated the Jewish people because the devil thought, if I can stop this line, I'll stop his agenda of bringing the Messiah. So for multiple reasons, we hear the fierce fatherly love of God in this passage, protective of his image, protective of the human race, protected particularly of His people through whom salvation will come. 
And so it should stand to reason that every one of us, especially those of us who know the relentless pursuing love of Jesus Christ, would want to be proactively loving toward everyone, but toward the vulnerable in particular. Now, all of that theological preparation is necessary to appreciate these two points that Obadiah makes in this brief passage. That fierce parental love, the example of it, particularly in the pursuit of us by Jesus Christ who came all the way from heaven to become our neighbor, to die in our place, to pay the penalty of our sins. All of that should move us to pursue others feverishly, especially the vulnerable. And the opposite of that is what? What we see in this passage, verses 11 through 14. The opposite of that proactive, pursuing, relentless love, especially for the vulnerable, the opposite of that is a deadly progression of unbrotherliness, I put in your in your outline, but we could say unneighborliness, a deadly progression of becoming dehumanizing, dehumanized, as well as dehumanizing others. Notice how it unfolds. It's always helpful to ask, how did I get here? When you, when you get yourself in a real mess by your sinning, it's helpful to say, how did I get here? And it's inevitably, it starts out as something just seemingly harmless. How did these Edomites get to this place of actually standing at the crossroads, not just being passive, but standing at the crossroads and hacking down the Israelites as they tried to escape? It started rather harmlessly, or so it appeared. It started with passivity. Verse 11, on the day you stood aloof. On the day those strangers carried off their wealth, those foreigners entered their gates, cast lots for Jerusalem, you became like one of them. They might protest. No, we didn't. We just stood by and watched. By your passivity, you became a part of the active oppression of your brethren. There's only one reason, there are a couple of reasons, there are a couple of reasons we may be passive when we see someone who is vulnerable, being taken advantage of, being abused, being mistreated, being spoken ill of, and we do or say nothing. Only a couple of reasons. One is that we're afraid. Another is that we don't care. Sometimes both. Afraid or don't care. And the Bible says that neither is a tolerable place for a Christian to remain. Now, it's okay to be afraid. Of course, we are afraid. But when fear, when fear becomes cowardliness, cowardliness and apathy are not dispositions that God tolerates among Christians. I'm not, a, I'm not a courageous person, you say. I am a fearful person, of course. Every sane human being is a fearful person. So courage is a choice. And you may go into this, this battle. You may go into this state of protection 
You might be mobilized in the words that you say, even while your knees are knocking, but you lean into that fear and you act courageously, standing up for that one, that vulnerable one who is being mistreated. So when you see the, the, your fellow student being mocked in the locker room, your calling is to stand up with them. When your neighbor is being mistreated because they don't have the same kind of social connections that others might have, your calling is to stand with them, to stand up with the, for that person of another race who is being mistreated, overlooked, disabu- uh, uh, misunderstood. To, to stand up for that person in our community uh, whom we may be using as a workhorse but not defending as, a, as an undocumented uh, a citizen without a way to citizenship, but they're being used. Or, or that, uh, that person that you may not even have a personal relationship with but you see that they're treated unjustly because they're not able to stand for themselves. That little baby in the womb who can't speak for himself, that young woman who is terrified with an unexpected pregnancy, that uh, woman who is being taken advantage of because she's single or she's single again, Or, or that young man who has battled all of his life with same-sex attraction and he's being mocked, made fun of, takes courage, takes care. God says, I have the one who sent my son for you. When the devil had you in his, his grip, you had no hope. And here my son was, it wasn't his fault. He didn't, he, he, it wasn't his place to get his hands dirty, to shed his blood for people who don't deserve it. They're only getting what they deserve, but out of love. He was compelled to come and not only lay down his life for us, to stand in the gap, to take the blows, the slings and arrows that were due to us, ultimately the judgment of God on the cross. But he did so proactively, generously, sacrificially to the point that he calls us brothers and sisters and even friends. Now, what happens if you continue on in that passivity? I don't want to get involved. I don't want to get my, my life is complicated enough. I don't need that. What are people going to think about me? Will they cut me out of their social networks? What will they say about me online? Will my own family turn against me? What happens when you continue to give in to that passivity? Look at how it progresses in the, in the text in front of us. It progresses into a feeling of superiority. Eventually, we find a way to justify our passivity by thinking, you know, these people are really getting what they deserve anyway. Do not gloat over the day of your brother. Literally, the the Hebrew is, do not look down your nose at your brother in the day of his misfortune. Don't rejoice over the people of Judah. We can actually think, you know, well, if that person would just work harder, they'd just done things the right way. Well, they made some bad choices, should have had better friends, 
Should have been better connected. Should have been born in a different part of town. Should have been born looking a different way. Should have been born a different gender. Are we really thinking that? Who are we ever to think ourselves superior to anyone else rather than, but for the grace of God, I would be in the same situation by my own doing or by a different providence? And then look how it continues to progress, not only from passivity to superiority to mockery. Verse 12, don't rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of their distress. Do we actually make fun of people who are disadvantaged or struggle in a certain way? Do we use our tongues publicly to shame other people. Whoever said that sticks and stones may break my bones, but words may never hurt me didn't live in the real world. Who of us has not experienced words that hurt much more than a brick bat against your head? But this is the way the Edomites continued to give themselves to doing the devil's work. And then finally, verses 13 and 14, the lowest of all, the nadir of their aggression against the Israelites. They allowed them not only to penetrate the walls of their city, but they stood at the crossroads waiting for the fugitives, running for their safety, and they took advantage of them and cut them down. This is what Jesus warns us against even when He says, you call your brother or your sister Raka thou fool. When you say, you're unworthy of my fellowship, he says, it's just the first step. It's just the first step toward virtual murder, cutting off that person, reducing them to loneliness, perhaps public shame and perpetual hurt. That is not your calling. Still, you say in those situations, you know, I, I, just, I just can't get involved. It's not my battle because it, it doesn't touch me. That's not my part of town. It's not my part of the country. It's not my experience. The words of Martin Niemuller, the Lutheran pastor in the Second World War, who for the first seven years, for, for, uh, for a number of years, and the rise of Nazism, he was a, a supporter of Nazism. It's helping us economically. As long as things are going economically, he reasoned, it's okay what's happening on the sidelines. Those people have, have had uh, enough success. It's okay for them to have a little setback now. Then eventually he was turned on as a Christian, and put in prison for seven years. And he said, it's nothing like prison to, to clear your mind. And in the Holocaust Museum at the, at the, the, at the, United, at the U.S. Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., there is this famous quote inscribed in a panel there, this famous quote for Martin Niemuller. First, they came for the socialists, and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. 
Then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. Many years later, when he wrote his great work of, uh, of guilt and hope, he recorded what he said to every Jewish person he met for the rest of his life. He said this. Uh, this is what he said about it. Thus, whenever I chance to meet a Jew known to me before then as a Christian, I cannot but tell him, Dear friend, I stand in front of you, but we cannot get together, for there is guilt between us. I have sinned, and my people have sinned against thy people and against thyself. How so? Niemuller explained. By his passivity, he became an anti-Semite. We're not merely talking about racism or classism. Because of the fierce parental love of God, we know that when we are passive, passing by someone we see who is vulnerable and in need of pursuing courageous love, when we pass by them, we're not just anti-this or anti-that. We're anti-God. We're anti-Jesus. Because Jesus says at the great day in Matthew 25, when humankind is assembled before me, I will ask, I will, I will, I will say to them, either welcome or depart. And by welcome, I will mean when I was sick, you visited me. When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was in prison, you saw to my needs. And they'll say, well, when did, we didn't see you. No, when you did this unto the least of these, my brethren, you did it unto me. And when you did not do it to the least of these, my brethren, you did not do it unto me. To stand up actively for the vulnerable no matter where we see them. Whenever we see it happening, to stand on the side of the vulnerable is to stand on the side of Jesus. He goes on to give this very severe warning in verse 10. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. Here's the especially ferocious parental love of God when he says, I do not want you to be cut off forever. I want you to live into the humanity that I've made you to live into. So I call you to active pursuing love. Because to be on the other side of that, to be passive, is ultimately to be involved in the devil's kingdom. Conflict is called an abomination in Scripture. To be passive is not to be a Christian brother. To be at enmity, to be involved in constant strife is a form of witchcraft, the Bible says, Galatians chapter 5. It has disastrous results. It allows the devil to get a foothold in our fellowship. It grieves uh, the, those who are 
uh, working to expand the kingdom of God. It actually denies unbelievers of the gospel. So he tells us, as Christians especially, stand in the gap. He calls us as elders and pastors to stand in the gap to protect the flock against this kind of schism. Not only insisting on peace at all costs, but also pursuing reconciliation even when it's not popular. Because this is what Jesus did for us. The Bible says that Jesus laid down his life for us. And therefore, we ought to lay down our lives for one another. Can't you hear the eternal counsel? Before the foundation of the world, God seeing that uh, those people who are made in his image and given all the gifts of himself freely, and he sees them turn away from him and uh, want his gifts and not him and rebel against him. And what could have been going on in the eternal council? What, what will we do about that? Maybe we should just destroy them all and start over. Let's just have a fresh start. Let's try another world. That's not the conclusion Father, Son, and Holy Spirit came up with. It was instead that God so loved the world. That word could be translated enemy there. God so loved his enemies. These who took his gifts and turned on him, God so loved his enemies, he moved toward them. And he designed a plan by which he would not just save them from themselves or save them from hell, but by which he would make them his children and even his friends. And the plan was, was horrific from some standards. Son, there's only one way they can become my children. It's for you to go and live among them in their place change their record, and then take the wrath that is due for them on yourself. Allow yourself to be scarred and traumatized and terrorized and made lonely and betrayed that they might be my children and my friends and live forever. And then the Son sends the Holy Spirit to continue to do, what does the Bible say? Stir up love in our hearts and move us to do that which is not natural, to imitate the proactive, relentless love of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, especially toward the vulnerable and the undeserving. That we might imitate that gospel that we have experienced and people might look on from the outside and say, that is transcendent love. I've got to be a part of that kind of family. I read a story a number of years ago about two boys who were playing in, in a river. And I can identify with this because you, you know how the rivers ebb and flow and they, when, they, when, they, when the river goes down, it creates some soft shoreline that's almost, it's, it may as well be quicksand. If you're not careful, you can get swallowed up 
in that. Two little boys were playing there. They didn't come home one day, and so their parents went looking for them. And to their sorrow, they saw that the, the waters had receded, and they saw just the head of one of their sons above the sand. They feverishly dug him out, and when they got the pressure of the sand away from his lungs, he could breathe again. And they said, oh, we're so glad you're alive. Where is your brother? He said, I'm standing on his shoulders. His brother had put him on his own shoulders to push his head above the sand so that he could breathe. One lived, the other died. But how noble was that love. Jesus said, this is what I've done for you. And now because I have assured your eternal life, what is there to be afraid of in this world? What could you possibly lose in standing up for that one who cannot breathe? Even should, should you even lose your life? You'll get it many times back, many times fold in that which is to come, including those praiseworthy words of Jesus saying, when you did it for that one, the least, you did it for me. Thank you. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, sometimes your words are very stern, ultimate, and piercing. But we thank you that because of Jesus, every word we read, we know, comes because you love us. And herein we've found things that are surely convicting to us, but Lord, we pray that they would ultimately be ennobling to us that we would stand up in this love that you have, with which you have loved us, that we might hear, well done, good and faithful servant at the end. And we thank you, Lord, for the good news that others heard that, that charge and took the gospel to these descendants of Israelites and Egyptians and Edomites, and they too, some of them were also saved. Thank you, Lord, for never giving up on us. We ask that we would imitate that same love to those around, that you might get a name for yourself in Jesus' name. Amen.